mind, and as I was looking this over, uh, I was just thinking about how when you read the Gospel of Mark, if you've grown up in the church, you sort of get the idea that it's kind of normal that Jesus is casting out demons. And in the Gospels, it's happening everywhere Jesus goes. It never happened in the Old Testament. Uh, never uh, run across somebody that it says they're demon-possessed. And so this is really an electrified time uh, in history when Jesus has come, when he is going about his work, fulfilling his uh, purpose to save us and to make all things new. Mark 1, 16 to 39. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When they had gone a little farther, he saw James the son of Zebedee and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Then they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue, who was possessed by an impure spirit, cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said, uh, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority. He gives orders he even gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to, to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, and he, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew he, who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. God, thank you for this moment. Grateful, O oh God, that we have your word, that you have always been faithful to bring your word to us. Lord, uh, help us to be um, really listening to you today. Um, 
would you bring your binding and good authority to us and help us to respond in the way you would have us. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. All right, thank you, Pastor Brandon, for reading scripture. We have a number of things to cover in the book of Mark there. We're uh, wrapping up chapter one. We have begun a, a series in the book of Mark. And again, the, the big deal about the notebook is it includes a study in the book of Mark that you can do by yourself. You can hang out, do it uh, with your spouse or someone else. Anyway, so that's, that is a, an option as well. So that keeps us all uh, together. In the, you know, it's always good when we're one mind and one heart, and that is a, a one way to do that. Well, pastors like to tell stories from their seminary years. Um, some of them are not all that interesting, <laughs> but they think they're interesting. Um, in, uh, I was in seminary in Orlando, Florida for three years, brand new upstart uh, seminary called Reform Theological Seminary. Um, it was actually in Maitland, Florida, which is a little bit north of Orlando. And I got a Master's of Theology, or Master's of Divinity. Uh, and for some reason, they thought I passed all my courses. And um, you can go downstairs and you can see my diploma. I have a Master's. Of, I have Mastered Divinity. Did you know that? Um, it would make sense if you didn't know that. Um, because no one really masters that subject. Um, but let me tell you a little bit about my experience there. Uh, and that is that 8 o'clock in the morning, you wake, you get, you're, you're up and going. And if you have a, a language class like Hebrew or Greek, you better be on your game. Because those professors in particular don't mess around. And uh, it's up and going. And by 10.30, you've had one or two classes. And then you usually have a break. Maybe Tuesday or Thursday is chapel. And so uh, we have chapel time. And then we're back at it, the lunch break, and you're back at it again in the afternoon, and then the next day comes and repeat. And also evening, an evening class might be in there as well. So it's kind of, kind of it moves along. If you're at full time, you're really moving along. Well, uh, on the days we didn't have chapel, uh, we'd have a little bit longer break, and then we, a group of guys and myself, we would want to designate someone to do a run down to the 7-Eleven and uh, go get some snacks and some coffee. And so um, one day I was designated as the guy to, to make the run. Uh, a little too far to walk, and uh, so you had to drive. And, uh, and that morning I may have just had a lecture from a renowned expert on church history, or I may have heard a compelling presentation uh, f- about the minor prophets. Uh, my morning was packed with meaning, um, kind of like a, I don't know, like a church lecture seminar conference all in one. Substantial, thick meaning. Uh, the kind of meaning that makes a person come alive. Uh, I've watched people get married. I've been in the middle of marriage ceremonies. And those are events packed with meaning, aren't they? And you see the bride and groom looking at each other, and those are meaningful gazes at each other, aren't they? Well, that was kind of like my experience, uh, 8 o'clock on a Tuesday morning. Uh, I felt alive. I was starting to think differently. I was pondering things. I was... Uh, hopefully changing as a person. And uh, I was in awe. And now I'm on a run to 7-Eleven for some snacks. 
Uh, now remember what's happened to me that morning. I've been in kind of this worship lecture experience, and I'm going out of that world and going into the real world, as we sometimes talk about. And this worship lecture experience was, to me, still with me as I was in line at 7-Eleven. It was still in my mind. I was still thinking about what just happened. And I have been reflecting on that as preparing for today and wondering, what, are, what did I experience in those lectures and then what was going on inside me? And it was nothing short of, of an experience with the kingdom of God. Uh, it is, if the kingdom of God is where God makes his presence known, well, God was making his presence known in those lectures, in the prayers of my professors. I was becoming awakened to my need. It wasn't sort of a story that, well, I'll just get a job and I'll just kind of get a diploma and this is just kind of like my union card. You know, you got to be a pastor and so you get through this stuff and you study this stuff and you kind of do this stuff and then you get on with what's really important. It wasn't like that. I had an experience of standing in that 7-Eleven sign as a blessed person because my eyes were being opened. The king was revealing his presence to me. So in front of me, though, is some construction worker in line. And I wonder, well, what meaning grips their life? Or behind me is a businessman. And well, what story is he in? Or what story does he think he's in? And then I look at the checker and I kind of go through the motions of paying this for the stuff and I, I'm still kind of in this dream world. I'm in the real world with the checker at 7-Eleven, but I'm also in another world. Where am I? What's going on? And I know I'm going to leave this 7-Eleven world for just a minute and I'm going to go back into that other world I just came out of. Isn't that interesting? You see, what was happening to me was Jesus was impressing upon me his presence. The kingdom was with me right there at 7-Eleven. The kingdom was with me very powerfully in those lectures, in that worship lecture experience. So today I want to talk to you about the meaning of the kingdom. You see, Jesus had announced, right after John the baptizer, Jesus had announced his his preaching agenda was to announce that the kingdom of God is at hand. And that's where we left off last week. And now we all went, well, what does that mean? What does it mean that the kingdom has arrived? Well, let's watch Jesus go into Capernaum. Let's watch Jesus with his call to the fishing, the men to become fishers of men, his disciples. And what it is, is that's what's unfolding in Mark chapter 1, is the meaning of the kingdom. The meaning. And it looks like surrender, it looks like lordship, it looks like mercy, and it looks like preaching. So those are the things I would like to unpack with you today. And so let's take a look, first of all, when Jesus now is going to call his disciples. And uh, we have the account there that starts in verse 16. Uh, Jesus finds uh, the first disciples. He collects a few more afterwards. But we have... Uh, uh, 
Peter and John and others being called to be, uh, be followers of Jesus who is going to show them what the kingdom is all about. And he tells them, come follow me and I'll make you, uh, make you those who fish for people. Um, and so they are central to what we see in the book of Mark. And these events that are going to unfold are going to be purposeful events, events to train the disciples. They are going to be trained in reaching people. Now, what is a disciple? A disciple literally means student. So they're enrolling in the master's class. They're going to follow his teaching, watch his practices, and they are going to be mentored in kingdom stuff. It's going to be intimate, it's going to be instructive, and it's going to be imitative. So they're going to watch Jesus be confronted by the religious authorities. They're going to watch him. What does he say? How does he act? What's his attitude? They're watching him. They'll have debriefing sessions. Jesus will be teaching a crowd, and the crowd won't seem to understand. Then they're going to get the inside cliff notes. So when we watch the book of Mark unfold, it's not only we who are watching it, but Jesus is presenting events for the disciples to watch. Now, I want to make sure you know that what we really are endeavoring to do as a church is we're endeavoring to grow and to mature. And God's agenda for you is to mature you as a disciple. And there, there's often this idea that there's Christians, and then there's sort of the, the Marines of the church. You know, the, they hit the beach. They're the, the, they're the disciples, right? And there's the discipleship core. Sometimes in a church, it's a, like in a, in a side room on, you know, 5 a.m. on Wednesday mornings, and they, they, they're really rugged. Those are the disciples, right? Uh, Christians are disciples, and disciples are Christians. That's, that's how it works. There aren't any couple different tiers in the church. And so you are being called. You are being called to sign up for discipleship. Uh, and you never, ever get it down. You never, ever graduate. Uh, and if you're new to us, new to the church, we uh, want to communicate the grace of our imperfections. <laughs> we are still signing up every day. Lord, I'm still in school. Train me. Uh, but we are going to grow in maturity. And we are all learning the kingdom of Jesus. We are all learning it. We learn it when, when we gather for worship. We're trying on new things. We've, we've already repented uh, in this worship service. And that's just a, in uh, Wednesday at uh, 2 in the afternoon, perhaps you have to repent. We're just training. We're training. We're putting on the new clothing that's in Jesus. We're learning it. So, um, and now all of this instruction... And all of this training and all of this imitating of Jesus, we don't want to confuse this for, well, I'm in the process of getting better. I'm in the process of getting better. What we want to make sure we know is that the Christian life starts with faith, that trust in Jesus alone, and we are then received as children, and we have the foundation, the fancy theological word is justification. This is that we are not sort of going along, cooperating with God's grace, getting better. Well, I want to get closer to Jesus. I'm trying harder. Well, I hope so. Someday I want to. As Christians, we, by faith, believe that, and the Bible teaches, that we are fully accepted as brothers and sisters in Christ by sheer faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. That's the foundation. Based on that, we begin to grow and mature. 
right? Okay, and we, and we begin now to follow Jesus, okay? And so we want to, we, we have a platform of love. Now, God, in his good grace, has curriculum for you. Uh, just as he has curriculum for the disciples, uh, uh, synagogue with a demon, that's the curriculum for the disciples. Uh, we have curriculum as well. And God in his plan has difficulties and afflictions and hardships and all your amazing plans and all the things that you thought you were going to make out of your life and all this, the frustrations and obstacles. God's curriculum comes along and it's very, very kind of, it's odd a bit how you grow in grace. And you actually grow by acknowledging more and more your weakness, uh, your inability. Um, and it's sort of this strange downward descent. You're not climbing a mountain, you're falling into a valley. Very unusual. Uh, and we find in the disciples, they're very prideful men, very prideful men. Uh, and uh, one in particular, Peter, who's just, he's not going to put up with the difficulties of, of Jesus dying. That's not, that's not on my agenda. So he resists the idea that Jesus is going to die. So Jesus dying means that Peter's going to have to, in a sense, descend and kind of die himself. And be, I'm not doing that, right? I'm building something here. I'm doing something great here, right? Well, that's like us in the Christian life. So the, the calling of the disciples is very similar to, um, to really our second point. I'm just going to move rather quickly here. And um, the, the calling of the disciples moves us to our second point, And that is that this meaning of the kingdom, uh, not only is it going to come when, through the disciples surrendering to Jesus, but it's going to come through experiences of his lordship. Okay. And so this story about the synagogue, and then what happens is there's a synagogue service, it's a worship service, and then at the end of the service, uh, then a man enters the room and he, he has a demon in him, and it seems a little confusing because it sounds like there's almost multiple demons because the, uh, word, the plural is used, but here he is, he's, he's evidently troubled, he's evidently in deep spiritual darkness, and uh, this event happens. And uh, what Jesus does is he exhibits his lordship. It's his first demonstration of his lordship uh, there in Capernaum, which is kind of like his hometown. And the response, of course, is that people heard first his teaching in the, in the synagogue. He's teaching. And he's not sort of quoting a lot of authors, right? He's not doing that at all, um, sort of secondary or third sources. He's teaching like he is the first primary source, okay? Uh, in other words, this guy knows what he's talking about, and he speaks with a different kind of authority. He's speaking right to my heart. And then he takes, just by mere words, speaks to a demon, and the demon leaves this man. And this res the result is the people are pretty amazed at his teaching and his authority. Uh, and he quiets the demon down, uh, and uh, he controls the demon in the in the timing of the timing of his own identity to be revealed. Uh, Jesus does not want that to be revealed until the Holy Spirit is given and the true, accurate revelation of who he is is given. But the disciples are watching this, right? The disciples are watching this. Now uh, they haven't encountered their own desperation for his lordship yet. They're just, they're just fishermen left their nets. They're just watching this. We have no comment in Mark's gospel about how they're responding. But they will encounter his lordship when they encounter 
massive waves and horrific winds on the Sea of Galilee. And that's coming up in Mark 4. And they will cry out, don't you love us? And then Jesus, just by mere words, like the demon, by mere words, talks to the waves and talks to the wind and it all calms down. And then they respond because they were desperate. Wait a minute. Who is it that we are associating ourselves with? Who is this one who speaks by mere words, talks to wind and talks to waves? Who is it that is in our boat? And that's one of the great goals of Mark. Mark 1 through 8 is who has arrived? Who's on the scene, right? Well, these are uh, what's being demonstrated here are attributes of, of lordship. Right, Jesus is one. The, Jesus is the one who's in control. Jesus is the one who has authority, and Jesus brings the presence of the kingdom of God into that person who is experiencing such darkness. Now, in particular, when we think about lordship, lordship, again, that's an area that we don't get down. That's why we have to repent, right? So, there, at no point do we ever figure out lordship. There was a strange debate, some of you may know about this, back in the 1980s among evangelicals. It went on and on and divided seminaries and theologians and all this stuff. It was about the lordship salvation debate thing. Like, can you accept Jesus and not him be your Lord? He can be your Savior without being your Lord. It's kind of this odd thing that started in one corner of the church, as it were. And, well, just so you know, in the PCA, we're with the lordship thing. Yes, you bow the knee of your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior, and the whole deal is a big package. Like We don't divide that up, okay? That would be really odd for a PCA minister to talk that way. Um, and so and you can't encounter Jesus without encountering him as Lord. I mean, that's just like there, there, is, there is no way to understand him apart from that. Right, And so theologian John Frame is the one who worked a lot on this and wrote lots on this. But the idea is that whenever you encounter God, you're always encountering him usually in these three areas, control, authority, and presence. And what's going to happen is in the Gospel of Mark, what's going to happen is there's going to be a transition take place. The transition is going to be, wait a minute, the king has arrived, the kingdom's here, this whole place is his. I'm his if I'm a disciple. I'm following Jesus. Wait a minute. Wait. I was in evaluation mode of him. Uh-oh. He's Lord and King. He's in evaluation mode of me. And that's when you know you've encountered lordship. That's when you know you've encountered God as he really is, uh, as much as a human being can, can encounter that. Is that making sense? That means that you have moved out of the idea of the, well, let's see what Jesus can do for me. Let's kind of see what this is all about to the point of, wow, I'm out of the line with this king and this kingdom, right? So this experience here in, the, in Capernaum at the, at the synagogue, Jesus takes his disciples to church for the first lesson. I think that's interesting. Uh, how long did they tolerate that man? I mean, tolerate meaning just be be unable to help the man, as what I meant to say, um, is we don't know. But Jesus is now showing his mercy and his grace also combined with his power. So we often think that his lordship is sort of a scary thing, and there's some good to that in the sense that we revere God because of his lordship and his kingship. 
But when we follow Jesus, what we actually are discovering is that his lordship doesn't crush us. He's willing to be crushed for us. Okay? So his lordship, we're watching him and saying, oh, he's king, but he also suffers for me. He draws me in with his love. So thirdly, how do we discover this kingdom? How do we discover it? Well, uh, Jesus brings the kingdom through deeds of mercy. He brings the kingdom through deeds of mercy. And now we're in, uh, we're in uh, Simon's uh, mother-in-law's house, and she has a fever. And Jesus heals her. And then we have this summary of everything Jesus does uh, in this region. He heals the sick and the demon-possessed. And uh, the whole town is gathered at his door. And he just keeps healing and healing many, many people. And then there's all kinds of, of demonic activity that he, uh, he, he deals with. And so the whole town is being ministered to. Now, it's not just a lecture hall, okay? Christianity uh, does not just show up as some sort of lecture. It, it, there are deeds that accompany the gospel. This is vitally important because the kingdom is restorative. The kingdom is restorative. So it is holistic. And what we'll find is that the salt and light of the kingdom permeates all aspects of society. We have only really to watch Western civilization in particular to watch the salt and light permeate society. When the United States was founded, for instance, uh, if I have this right, there were two small little hospitals somewhere on the East Coast. I can't remember who, who started those. Well, I'll just tell you, the third hospital wasn't started by the Atheist Society. And if you go to all the major cities on the East Coast in particular, you know, you'll have like a Presbyterian Hospital in Philadelphia or something. You'll see that out there. You'll see it downtown New York. You'll see these things. And so denominations started hospitals. Well, that's the, that's the mercy of the gospel in very practical ways. And it's quite remarkable, the salt and light of the kingdom, taking a look at diseases and fixing that problem. Now, there's whole cultures and whole societies that don't have that worldview. They succumb to, to the atoms, as it were, or they succumb to reality. Reality is not to be conquered, it's just to be submitted to. And the Judeo-Christian worldview comes along and says, well, how can we stomp this disease out? This is not normal. This is not good. And so we put our effort into what's, what it means to be made in the image of God. We were made in the image of God as those who have dominion over this world. So a pencil, a pencil is an expression of dominion. We take wood, we take lead, uh, we take... Uh, Rubber, and then what we do is we command those elements to become a pencil. Every time you hold a pencil, you are you're you someone expressed the image of God. How about that? And so this is remarkable. And so what Jesus does is he he heals people. And of course, when we think about the issues of justice in our society, we say if you're a politician and you're a believer, by all means work on good laws, of course. Don't tolerate evil. Work on it. Fix things. Use your political uh, ingenuity and ingenuity and come up with something better. 
Bring the salt and light of God's restorative kingdom to every corner of this world. So we as a church think, what would it look like for us to bring the kingdom? It includes deeds of mercy, deeds of kindness. Now, fourth, the meaning arrives. Again, we're wrestling with what, is mean, what does it mean that the kingdom arrives? And fourthly, it's, it arrives through preaching. Look at how Mark chapter 1 wraps up. Jesus wakes up after a big, long day, uh, and he wakes up early, and he is wrestling in prayer. And uh, his disciples find him, and they say, hey, there is a crowd. The whole town is looking for you. And Jesus makes this statement, uh, let us go to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. Verse 38, this is why I came. Now, as a preacher, I love, hey, look at this, the priority of preaching. Isn't that great? The kingdom comes through proclamation. And what is that proclamation? And let me finish with the gospel. The kingdom comes with proclamation and not instructions. What do I mean by that? Typically, people think of religion or Christianity or whatever. When they think of the Bible, they think of instructions. Well, here's some good ideas, and uh, I guess I should do them. Here's some good wisdom. I think I should... Do that wisdom. Jesus proclaims the kingdom. He proclaims the gospel of the kingdom. And what does that mean? That means it is an announcement. It's an announcement of his victory over darkness and death and sin. And so we listen to the gospel as an announcement, like an announcement of an anniversary party, like an announcement of a birthday party. What do you contribute to the birthday party? Unless you're one of the planners, you're just receiving the invitation, maybe in the mail, on email. You just receive it, and that's your role. I just received the news. That's it. That's what the gospel is. It is a proclamation of news of what our king has accomplished. And we can't think about that too, too often or too clearly. How does the kingdom arrive? It arrives through proclamation. Now, we can add to that, reading of scripture we can add to that the counsel of my friends we can add to that um, again just 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 the uh, the study of scripture but what is what what happens when a person encounters the preaching or proclamation of the gospel they encounter god's binding authority in it it's not just a suggestion it comes with a unique power a binding authority is always accompanied uh, to, to the gospel. There is something in us that is disturbed. There's something in us that's challenged. And there are things that we would never admit to ourselves become real to us. So here I am in the seminary listening to these lectures at 8 in the morning on Tuesday. What, what, what's going on in me? Well, I'll tell you what I'm not doing. I'm not saying, well, I knew that. Well, I got that down. Boy, when is this going to be over? That never happened once, in, in, not for one minute in seminary. How about that? So I was constantly being challenged by a comprehensive understanding of what's going on in the world. And that's what it's like to hear the gospel. The gospel's like, where have I been? What have I been, what have I been thinking? Why did I conclude this is important in life? That's what the gospel does. The gospel shakes you to your core. 
And it doesn't present as, well, this is just one of many ways. Now, you might want to try some teachings of this religious leader. No, it doesn't do, not at all. The distinct work of Jesus is unavoidable with this real gospel teaching. It's consequential. And you feel blessed as you hear it. You're not descending into self-pity and never recovering. You, you feel blessed. Wait a minute. How am I to hear this? This is amazing. And we can be 2,000 years removed from the moment Jesus walked this earth and still feel his presence. I could, have, I could have been left in my hardened heart condition. That's an awareness that comes over you. I could have been, I could have been left to go my own way. I've discovered the very source of life. That's why Jesus says I have to preach. There has to be content. Now, he's going to be able to heal people. And that's going to be, like, amazing. But the people have to rightly identify the one who healed them and to hear what, he, what the big healing is. And the biggest healing is the forgiveness of sins. The biggest healing is right there. And that's coming up in Mark chapter 2. But the very source of life is exposed in true gospel preaching. And now Jesus bids me to follow him. And he fo I follow him into, into wherever he will lead me. He might lead me into a place like Capernaum where spiritual darkness is happening. Uh, he might lead me to help someone like Simon's mother-in-law. That's where the kingdom might go as I travel. How does the kingdom arrive? The kingdom arrives with the very presence of the king in all his goodness and in all his glory. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the kingdom. What more can be said? Have your way with us, O oh Lord. Grace us, Lord, with your presence. We love you. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. As we mark, we're going to continue to go through uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism as our affirmation of faith. So um, if you're new to that, uh, that's really just a summary teaching of, of, of the core doctrines of the Christian faith. And so uh, you'll find that on the, the next inside page of your worship folder. And uh, it's called our Affirmation of Faith. And we're going to ask the question, what is God? Are there more gods than one? And how many persons are there in the Godhead? That's a, that's a, a phrase uh, used of the Trinity, in case that's new to you. So let's stand and uh, let's say this aloud together. Uh, brothers and sisters, what is God? Are there more than more gods than one? How many persons are there in the Godhead? Uh, 
From east and the west, from north and south, people will come and take their places at the banquet in the kingdom of God. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also not also with him graciously give us all things? Come then, brothers and sisters, to the joyful feast of the Lord and be transformed. Great is the mystery of faith. Praise to you, Lord Jesus. According to his commandment, Christ, the bread of life. And as Paul said to the Corinthians, so I say to you, Christ, the Passover lamb, is sacrificed for us. Let us keep the feast. You may be seated. <clears throat> 